Welcome to Talking History, a series of talks from the Farnham U3A World History Group. The views expressed in this talk are representative of the views held at the time of the material being discussed. They do not necessarily represent the views of the speaker, the Farnham U3A World History Group, nor the team at the Mr T Podcast Studio. In this talk, Andrew Cole tells us about diet through the ages, as well as today's diet regimes. This talk was given at a time when gatherings were allowed as long as the room was well ventilated, and so the windows and doors were open, which means that quite a few extraneous noises have got onto the recording. It's great to be here in person. The last time I presented was the last presentation before the first lockdown. So there's no omens in this whatsoever. But I've also added it was about the Great Depression, so... Today we're exploring diet and dieting, the history of the struggle we have in understanding the relationship between our diet and our health. And I should make it clear that I'm no expert on diet. I don't engage in dieting, although I could lose some pounds. And there is absolutely no agenda today to try and convince the group to change your eating habits. Really. Let's talk about coverage. The what today, the what is focused on what we eat. I'm not covering drink. Alcohol would be a great story in its own right. And though there is some coverage of cookbooks, the emphasis is on what we eat and how it's linked to our size and our diet. The why is why people eat a beat and why they do, and what caused people to change their diets. The focus is on England, but there will be a lot of outside influences, including inevitably the Americans. And the period I'm using is from 1500, when the first diet book started to appear as the printing press arrived, and by the way through to the current times. I'm actually using quite a lot of the current position because our knowledge now helps inform the understanding of the past. You'll see how that turns out as we go through this. So what I'm going to do is I'm going to give you a chronological view of the history, a quick skim through from 1500, and then I'm going to do a couple of themes across the centuries as a pattern, and then I'm going to look at some what we call fad diets that are around today and their history. Some definitions first, I think it's quite important, because I'm using some particular versions of the word, distinct meanings, and I'm using this characterisation We start off with someone eating their diet, what they normally eat on an ongoing basis. Unfortunately, this often leads to being overweight, and the individual recognises this and decides to act. They start dieting to achieve some form of goal, shedding weight or a few inches off the hips. And after a period, they reach the desired target or they give up. Things then go in one of two directions. They fundamentally change what they eat, which is a new diet uh, that becomes the norm, or they lapse back to the old diet, back to where they started. And this up and down cycle is called yo-yo dieting. So let's talk about the chronological order and what I'm going to cover. For each period, we'll look at what food was consumed, the views on the time of what should be eaten, and the key influences that were at play. I had intended to include the Stuart era, circa the 17th century, 
but the research found so many similarities to the 16th century, although there were quite a lot of detailed changes, I don't think it helps in, in our knowledge of the bigger picture. But I've also looked at the two world wars, but their stories really are very different, worthy of a presentation on their own. So we're just going to cover the five other periods, and we're going to start with Tudor times. England's population nearly doubled in the 16th century, nearly two more million mouths to be fed. And in Tudor times, what and how much you ate was largely determined by your wealth, your social standing, and where you lived. Two-thirds of the English were village agricultural labourers, aglabs, and their families under the feudal hierarchy. The independent landowning freehold farmers were just becoming established. Towns had a range of manual tradesmen and merchants that were largely already detached from their rural counterparts. The church's structure crossed town and rural divides, as did the armed forces. But above them all were the nobility, the most senior clerics and the wealthy merchants, with properties in both urban and rural areas. Now why am I using this population? The most definitive work on the history of Dar is The Englishman's Food by J.C. Drummond, whose first edition came out in 1939 and was updated after the war. For Tudor times, he looked at the four dieting groups of, of four social categories, uh, and he did a lot of detailed work looking at the diets over the centuries. So what did Drummond's research say about diet for each social group? The Ag Labs, the bulk of the population, diet was simple and repetitive. The popular image of them barely having enough to eat is probably overstated. Analysis shows that for most country folk, for large periods at least, they ate adequately. It was largely bread-based, coarse and dark, fibrous rye and wheat breads were dense, hard to eat with an unpleasant taste. A common meal was sop, pieces of bread soaked up in broth or a porridge-based meal. Meat was not regular dish and only eaten in small amounts. Chicken was the most popular bird, pork the most common meat, both because they were easy to rear. As wool farming became more profitable, so mutton and lamb was more available, but to the loss of local arable land, and there were protests and strife as a consequence. Typically, fresh meat was eaten in the summer, dried and salted in the winter due to farming limitations. Fish, often dried and salted, was seen as inferior to meat, and that was quite important at the time. Pies were popular. Cooked vegetables, carrots, onions, beets, cabbages, turnips and legumes were a large part of the egg lab's diet. Adults rarely drank fresh milk. It was for the poor or the sick, the very young and the elderly. But cheese and butter were in the diet mix in, in, in quite a large way. Fruits were popular in season, but viewed as potentially harmful raw, so they were often only eaten cooked or in preserves. Now, when you add up that list that I've just gone through together, with a notable some exceptions, that's quite a healthy mix of diet food, albeit rather bland. The biggest problem for the ag, lab, ag labourers and their families were poor harvests. Shortages and high prices meant foods were beyond people's means. And there were at least two major famines in Tudor times, exasperated by the shift of land from crops to wool. Next, most agricultural labourers barely had enough to eat to survive, and insufficient for long-term good health. 
But this shortfall was not the prime factor for a life expectancy of averaging only 35 years. More significant was disease and the lack of good hygiene and sanitation. For the poorest in towns and cities, their diet was similar to their country cousins. But Drum's research focused on what he calls artisan townsfolk, coal viners, tailors, smiths and masons. They ate more fish and meat, typically alongside bread. Oysters were very popular where they were available. The only vegetable used in quantity were onions and cabbages in the soups. Cook shops sold lots of pies and other prepared dishes, the fast food of the day. <laughs> Port-based cities and towns meant more variety of dishes than the countrymen could possibly get. Now, townsfolk's diets were sensitive to the economy and food availability. They maximised meat intake when it was available, but in harder times they fell back on salted fish, cheese and soups. There were periods of corn shortages in towns, and the authorities sometimes provided welfare on bread supply, something that was unavailable to the rural communities. A significant issue for townsfolk was the reliability of quality food. Tradesmen watered down milk, meat could be rancid and products adulterated, issues that the near-source countrymen didn't have to face. And seasoning was used to hide the true state of the food, and authorities had inspectors, but they had little impact. Now, the only reference to clergy, monks and nuns and so on is that they ate generally better than their counterparts wherever they lived. But other than that, the diets were not too dissimilar, though I think they drank lots of wine. Let's move up the wealthy scale to the wealthy. So this is the wealthy countrymen. They dined well on the produce through the labours of their tenants. Though the landed weren't immune to economic depression, poor harvests and food shortages typically meant higher prices, and their incomes actually grew. Mills were dominated by extensive varieties of meats, served with a, a diverse range of herbs, more than today in some cases. Bread was typically fine wheat and manchet, a soft yeast bread of good quality, albeit lowering fibre. There are conflicting historical views on the extent fruit and vegetables were eaten. Some texts say that vegetables were popular, most uh, were not popular, limited to just onions, leeks and cabbages that were cooked with the meats. They also say little native fruit was consumed raw, served only cooked with meats and preserves. But others say that there was the start of trying more variety of homegrown vegetables and fruits. And there is evidence of new varieties of both veg and fruit being grown, though some of these were just for show rather than to be eaten. And honest grapes and dates and prunes were exotic table extras for the wealthy countrymen. There were a number of cookbooks published in the 16th century targeted at wealthy households that confirmed many favourites but also pushed the boundaries with new combinations of fruits, spices with their meats. Overall, the picture looks to be of a meat-rich diet with few vegetables or fruit, not a particularly healthy diet. The excesses of the nobility and the wealthy are pretty, with extravagant banquets, are pretty well known. Exotic dishes of every possible meat and bird, swans, the list is unbelievable. They were followed by sugar-based tarts and fritters. In fact, sugar was progressively added to every course and every dish type. Archbishops vied with the court and the nobility in their overindulgence. And these excesses will continue for nearly 300 years 
at least in some form. In reality, the headline stories probably overstate the levels of indulgence. History tends to recall exceptions rather than the everyday. But Drummond's research of the weekly provision stocks of the titled houses identified just the scale and the range of rich foods that were being consumed. Let's take a different perspective. What was seen as the right diet at that time, and what were the influences on diet, aside from the wealth and geographical divide that I've already covered? The dominant doctrine on health and good diet was derived from the ancient Greek humorism theory, remarkably dominant for nearly 2,000 years. Humorism is a big topic, but in essence it determined what was good and bad to eat based on four bodily fluids linked to your physicality and strangely even your personality. Though it had some things we'd agree with today, it was a flawed theory with some pretty quirky views on certain foods. 16th century English consumption books focused on diet, not dieting, normally linked to the wider lifestyle choices backed up by moral fortitude. And I found four particular popular books. Typical amongst them was the diplomat Thomas Eliot, Castle of Health, which went through 17 editions. Humorism was founded at its foundation, combined with a frugal, simple, less meat diet, alongside a civil ideal to avoid excesses. Quite how this went down with the nobles and the rich, telling them that they shouldn't be eating, I'm not quite sure. The other three books, all written by physicians, a common theme you'll find later, had similar doctrines, albeit with their own individual food anachronisms. And there was a general suspicion of raw fruit and some of the vegetables. Andrew Board's book of 1540 contained a number of warnings about raw fruits being harmful. In the plague of 1569, the sale of raw fruit in the street was banned. So that was the attitude to fruit. The first European bestseller book on diet was Attaining a Long Healthy Life by the Venetian Luigi Canara, published in 1558. And he is highly recognised in all the books I've read. It was become a common narrative. A person who lived their life to excess reforms their ongoing diet to achieve a better health. Canara's mantra was to eat and live in moderation, to have long and worthwhile life, and he lived into his 90s. The book went through 50 editions in the 17th and 18th centuries, and you can still buy it on Amazon today. What were the other influences? Sumptuary laws. Some of you may recall these. They've been around in Europe for many centuries, and they dictated how you could live aiming to set a clear distinction between societal ranks. Tudor England's aristocracy took exception to the courtiers and merchants' wealth with feasts that rivaled theirs. And sumptuary laws defined fabrics, styles and colours that each class could wear. But they also set boundaries on what food you could eat. For example, in 1517, the, the sumptuary laws were designed to limit the excessive fares the rules spelled out the number of dishes per meal that each social group could serve. So the royals could eat whatever they liked. That's not perhaps a surprise. The cardinals could serve nine dishes. Dukes, earls and bishops could serve seven. Lower lords could serve six. And the gentry could have just three. Each dish had all sorts of rules of what you could and couldn't have. And frankly, the three is enormous compared to what we eat today. So, you know, not cutting back that much. 
But the laws were largely unenforceable because there were so many exceptions and crafty workarounds. You always invited somebody at a higher level to your dinner when you wanted to have a big meal because then you were allowed to have it. Well, a great way to work. But it's generally recognised they set the ethos and the structures for that time. The church was influential. Prayer was seen as an important force against adversity, including famine. But more practically, most religions had codes and rituals associated with food and eating, abstinence and self-denial. Indeed, some sects' identities differentiated themselves by diet, and that's still the case today. In England, the church directly influenced what could and could not be eaten when. For centuries, fasting days were set by the church as part of observance. It didn't mean going out with food altogether, just eschewing flesh. Meat was replaced by sorted, occasionally fresh fish. And in the move from Rome Popedom to the Church of England, fasting rules ebbed and flowed as the relationship between the church and the state changed. Fishy days varied over the century. They were most commonly on Fridays, some Saturdays and even Wednesdays as well. But there were periods where fasting was banned altogether, as much about politics and economics as religious zeal. And the 40 days of Lent is, of course, a time for resisting temptation in the run-up to Easter. In Tudor times, various foods were forbidden. Shrove Tide consisted of three days, Shrove Sunday, Collop Monday, the Collop is a piece of fried or roasted meat, and Shrove Tuesday, opportunities to use up the forbidden foods. And there are records of pancake events back to the 14th century. So religion was very influential at that time. Let's move on past Tudor times now to the Industrial Revolution. The Industrial Revolution transformed Britain's place in the world. It had mastery of the seas by this point, and international trade interests were growing and protected, in part fuelled by the slave trade since 1640. Population growth accelerated, putting real pressure on food supply. Social categorisation that I used in the 16th and applied to the 17th centuries was no longer really representative. The term working class starts to appear in the books replacing labourers and peasants as the fuel system faded, formally repealed in 1660. And social categorisation moved to what we widely understand today, which is unskilled and skilled labour, middle and upper classes. Though actually the quality of data doesn't really arrive until the mid-19th century. That said, rural versus urban is a big thing that stays with us. On the availability of stable foods, there were three clear periods in the Industrial Revolution. The first half of the 18th century had few droughts, good harvests, rising living standards and a better diet. But the second half of the century, there was insufficient food. The carry-through from rapid population growth meant population needs ran twice ahead of the agricultural outputs. In the early 19th century, there were both good and bad harvests, with staple food prices varying wildly. Farmers protested when there were low prices, when there were times of plenty, and in 1815 the Corn Law came in to protect them. This and other factors meant poorer people suffered due to insufficient food or expensive food at certain times. On key dietary changes, the wealthy landowners' consumption largely remained excessive. But French cuisine became fashionable with the upper class. Sugar, still a luxury for the well-off, 
but now more affordable, became a common ingredient in dessert dishes. Market gardening and orchards expanded more vegetables and fruits for most social groups, even if they were seen as less desirable than meat and bread. Broccoli was introduced in 1700, tomatoes in 1750, and actually there's a whole catalogue of things that came in. Cheeses had regional identities now. Cheshire, Gloucester and Cheddar were available in the towns. There were shortages and uh, local food riots. In 1766, there was a well chronicled cheese riot in Nottingham. For country folk, there was a strange north-south divide on diet. The north typically ate far better than their southern counterparts. There were a number of reasons for this, but the largest seems to be that in the south, the landowners tended to sell their product to towns rather than supply the locals, whereas in the north it was much more balanced. But people in the north were also willing much more to drink milk and eat more vegetables. The south did not like it. And some changes were resisted. Potatoes, which arrived in 1586, were still being shunned by this point. By the 1780s, we see them starting to take hold in the north, but remained unpopular in the south. This was the period of the agricultural revolution, and I could go through a long list of things, all the changes that happened in this time, that, that actually meant food productivity and yield was so much better. But I'll name just one here, and that's the cultivating of turnips. A practice that was well established in, in Holland came to England. Now this may not seem very significant, but it led to cattle winter feed, allowing winter rearing, uh, and it meant that therefore we could have fresh meat all year round and not so reliant on salt preservation. But the biggest change was in the way experiments and trials were done with organised societies, panels and periodicals, resulting in a much higher yield rate and better learning across the farming industry. Despite a set of series of wet seasons and poor harvests, agricultural output grew, both for crops and meat supply. The problem is that the town population grew by a factor of 6.9, so home supply could not match demand. And so food imports grew. From previous periods, which was only about 5% from abroad, it grew to 40% in the Industrial Revolution period. But even this was not enough. There were food shortages and prices that led to malnutrition. The move to enclosures improved farming productivity, but damaged agricultural labour livelihoods and their lifestyles. With village economies struggling and the lure of regular employment, entertainment, inns and shops, 7.2 million people migrated to towns and cities in this period. England's infrastructure was just not equipped to handle the food supply for this, and the food quality in towns and cities deteriorated. Much was unfit for consumption. Drummond's book on the English food goes into some detail of just how bad things were. Tainted meat, stinking bad fish, and stories of milk that would just make you heave. Vegetables and fruit were transported into London by barge. That's good. But the return journey carried out sewage. A big problem was the time to market. Most food had to be shipped to towns from near and far countryside and ports. Turnpikes and local roads were in a poor state and shipment scale was just so small. The canals arrived, but they were good for large volumes, but slow and poor dealing with fresh produce. So the overall position for towns was actually food quality was dropping, and this continues for some time. The books on health and diet went in two very different directions. 
some clung to humorism, but others brought scientific insights, although some of them were still quite cranky. For example, a renowned medical teacher, William Cullen, informed the public that rice was bad for your eyes. And there's hundreds of other examples where you just can't believe that people wrote these things down. Literacy levels rose rapidly in the early 18th century, reaching 70% for men and 40% for women by 1714. Two books that were published just before the Industrial Revolution became major bestsellers in the period. The most recognised diet book of the period is an essay on regime or health and long life by the physician George Chain. He was a 32 stone eminent physician. He advocated a diet of moderation with less meat, more vegetables, emphasising that you should take individual responsibility. Chain made the connection between mental state and obesity, so he's renowned for that. But he took much pleasure in food and drink and was ridiculed by commentators on how somebody morbidly obese could be a credible champion of moderation. Art of Cookery Made Plain and Easy is a cookbook by Hannah Glass, one of the first times we see a, a woman in, the, in these roles, first published in 1747. It was a bestseller for a century with at least 40 editions, dominating the English-speaking market and making Glass one of the most famous cookbooks authors in time. William Watt was the surgeon to the king, and he became a celebrity with his book Cursory Marks on Corpulence. He critiqued studies and physician advice on diet, revealing just the, the randomness and diversity of opinion and practice that was out there. He added his own observations from post-mortems of the obese. He advocated bread with bran, all vegetables, small quantities of meat, alcohol avoidance, and eating little and often. Now they're all really good, but he also recommended salted meat, tight binding of the abdomen, little sleep, and intensive sweating. One of the most famous books, and again, you can buy today, is The Physiology of Taste by the Frenchman Jean Brulé Savarin. This is one of the most renowned books in history. It's an interesting combination. It's a masterwork on gastronomy, and yet pioneered the low-carbohydrate diet. He didn't call it that then, of course. He considered sugar and white flour to be the cause of obesity, and he proposed protein-rich diets instead. Let's move on to the Victorian era. Again, England's population doubled over a century. These are big growth numbers. We talked about big growth at the start of this century, but these were big growth. The increase was more to do with longer lifespans than increased birth rates, which actually fell from 1880 onwards and, and still continued to fall. But it still meant 15 million more males to be fed. And urban migration continued despite the food quality issues, moving from 50% to 77% by 1900. Only today we have 82% of the population lives in urban areas, so it's pretty close in terms of the, the scale. Farming continued to improve, but there were lots of problems. There were wet summers, cattle farmers hit by foot and mouth, that's the first record we've seen of that. Sheep farmers had uh, sheep liver rot problems. So food imports were necessary, in part due to taste demands, but also because we had a massive shortfall. And in Tudor and Stuart times, 98% of our food was homegrown, but in the Victorian era it dropped to only 60%. The US farmers had much larger productive farms. Using steamships and railway, they undercut the British farmers. Cheap corned beef arrived from Argentina, 
And the opening of the Suez Canal in 1869 with refrigerator ships from 1876 enabled cheap meat from Australia and New Zealand. At this point, meat became accessible, not necessarily always affordable, to all social classes. Now, of course, Dickens' novels and the social reports by Roundtree and others make much of the poverty and hardship of Victoria, England. And it was an issue. The 1840s is labelled by some historians as the Hungry Forties. And between 1850 and 1870, deaths attributable to starvation and malnutrition, now being recorded, was 15 in every thousand reported fatalities. That's about a hundred times people died of starvation than is recorded today. It caused much more morbidity indirectly. Modern research on the Victorian diet is a mix of quantitative and sociological studies. They can give quite different perspectives. For example, numerous research looked at industrial town workers and whether they did or did not have sufficient money to feed their families well. And the balance of the analysis is that industrial town workers had sufficient money to afford a good diet for their families. Yet other evidence shows that the industrial town families actually were ill-fed. So social scientists have stepped in to examine the mismatch. And they concluded that this is due to a good part in the changing role of women moving into the factory and that both sexes, men in particular, spending much more money and time on alcohol and social activities rather than on the family food. The general view is they had the money, but it just didn't go to food. The staple diet in this period was bread. Sustained growth of cheaper potatoes, not exactly popular, but getting more popular, at the expense of wheat up until the mid-century. From then, incomes rose, and consumers could now choose whether they preferred bread or potatoes. Wheat actually sustained its position over above potatoes at this time. Attitudes to fruit, vegetables and fresh milk remained divided until the end of the 19th century, and the amount of diversity of food consumed remained largely dictated by your social class. The upper class continued to eat lavishly, Mrs. Beaton, uh, and many others actually, I haven't realised how many were, the Book of Household Management of 1861, but there were many other examples, provided middle-class households with elaborate dinner recipes for their domestic servants to prepare. Gastronomy, and in particular French cuisine, was influential, cascading from the reserve of the wealthy to the status-seeking middle class. And townsfolk's quantity and quality of food improved, more than for the rural folk. Detailed records show agricultural labour's diet was typically sparse and deficient in protein and vitamins. There were some great product innovations at this time. Long-life pro- long products, condensed milk, dried eggs, soups and bottled sauces. Canned foods arrived. Once the preserved the armies and the navies, they moved to the public domain. Britain's first large meat canning factory was set up in 1865. Margarine of brands arrived in 1870s. All of those things were actually developed in the Napoleonic times by the French, but they actually started to hit the ground for the public at these points. Convenient branded packaged goods were also available in the local grocery store and promoted in newspapers and billboard adverts. Actually, the first one I found was Bird's Custard Powder from 1837. But it wasn't all good news. Food adulteration in towns had been a problem for centuries. It was sporadic in the 17th century, common in the 18th century, 
but it now became ripe in the 19th century. It really was rock bottom. Doctors cited rural patients becoming ill after eating in the town food, and seasoning was used to mask the dire conditions of the meat and the fish. Bread, cheese, milk, butter, sugar, sweets and more were adulterated in some very clever ways by food makers and shopkeepers. In the 18th century, there was a public outcry that accused millers and bakers of various forms of bread adulteration, and a commission was set up. The paper, an essay on bread, was published by uh, Humphrey Jackson in 1758, using the leading sign thinking of the day, and he found that a thing called alum was often used both to whiten the bread, allowing it to use cheaper grains, and to make it feel heavier. Now, alum is an aluminium-based compound, today we use it in detergents, that causes bowel problems and diarrhoea, and it's fatal for children. Alas, though this was found, little changed for the next 50 years. Neither bakers changed their practices, and the public didn't change its opinion. Adulteration of foods was very common at this time. But the 19th century was worse. The food shortages and high prices meant higher profits by doing so. There were three main breakthroughs that turned the tide against food adulteration. A guy named Frederick Ackham was a trained chemist, a well-known experimentalist recognised by the Royal Institution, and he used detailed chemical analysis to prove widespread dangerous adulteration of many staple products. His book, Death in the Pot of 1820, was an absolute sensation. But like all whistleblowers, he was ridiculed and hounded out by the offending traders. But the evidence was now out. And others followed. The Lancet publication, launched in 1838, formed an expert team and regularly published a stream of research papers showing the levels of adulteration. The work by Arthur Hassel in 1841 found that every single baker in London used considerable amounts of alum. This is 100 years on including the premium bands that advertise on the billboards perfect purity. And equivalent findings were found in milk, cheese and sweets. This came to a head in 1858 when 200 people were poisoned and 20 died after swallowing lozenges sweets, which the manufacturer, but they mistakenly used arsenic. So the government had to act and the Sale of Food and Goods Act arrived in 1875, which established principles that we still hold to today and they had a backup and enforcement team behind it, and adulteration from the 1880s onwards dropped significantly. All manner of publications started to arrive, with a large number of reading population, so more diet and now dieting books appeared. There were a number of cookbooks published by both men and women, but the books linking consumption to weight and health were largely to preserve male authors. Of the 25 recognised books as noteworthy, I've chosen five here, which actually start to show the growing influence of the Americans. The Lectures on the Science and Human Health by Sylvester Graham, an American minister. He was an evangelist and promoted vegetarianism, and he advocated whole grain breads and actually sold a lot of them as well. Fletcherism arrived. What is Fletcherism? Horace Fletcher was a flamboyant American character, physically and personality-wise. The practice of chewing until the food is reduced to a finely divided liquefied mass, which became all the rage in the US and in certain parts of London as well. 
The Letters on Corpulence by William Banting is probably the most famous dieting publication pre the 20th century. He was an excessively overweight undertaker and he tried all sorts of weight loss diet schemes until one seemed to work where he lost 46 pounds. He published his story and the dieting scheme and it became a worldwide bestseller in, in many languages and for decades the term abanting meant to be dieting. Silas Weir Mitchell was an American physician and pioneer in medical neurology and authored the book Fat and Blood About Diet. It was one of the first to recognise good and bad facts and showed the link between diet deficiency and anaemia. But on the negative side, he claimed weight was linked to climate and the seasons and whether you were thin or thick-blooded. Um, Edward Dewey was an American physician who pioneered therapeutic fasting and invented the no-breakfast diet plan. He attributed all disease and physiology problems to excessive eating. And he advocated long fasts and believed food abstinence could cure insanity and mental disorders. And there were plenty of alternative dieting schemes being promoted at the time. It would have been really tough to make sense of all that type of stuff that was going on. Quickly on to the 1920s. There's a famous quote that is used by everybody, all the books I've got, of this Drummond's comprehensive workbook on the Englishman's food. And he says the following at the start of the 20th century. It is no exaggeration to say that the opening of the 20th century saw more malnutrition rife in England than it had been in the great dearth of the medieval and Tudor times. So we were on a downward slope for 300 years. Amazing statement to make. But in the 20s, the lifestyle of food consumption of the 20s was, was two very contrasting narratives. There's the glamour, a sense of freedom, an expanding middle class, new sources of entertainment and consumerism with a large variety of new goods and services. That's one view. But in contrast, we've got the post-war period decline, which we saw in, up through the 1930s with the Great Depression. Poverty amongst the unemployed contrasted strikingly with middle-class affluence. The experience of the Great War influenced British society, particularly women. Maud worked and gained a certain degree of independence. World War I and Spanish flu gave young people a feeling that life is short and they should live today. <coughs> Younger women felt more empowered and was reflected in new fashions. Hair was shorter, dresses shorter, <coughs> women started to smoke, to drink and to drive cars. The independent flapper appeared on the scene, shocking society with her outlandish behaviour. Now behind this, it's all about being slim, curve-free, flat-chested, and French fashion came to the fore at this point, all looking for the slim image. And these brought more focus on weight and diet, but it was not all like this. The other narrative is of the working class. From the 1922 until the mid-1930s, there were hunger marches, highlighting the difficulty in putting food on the table. Unemployment levels were higher than previously, but they were heavily skewed to the industrial towns in the north. Now, there's much research on the working class income and diet for this period, and the prevailing view is that for the working male-headed households, so that's the men that run the house, the energy and nutritional food availability was actually probably okay. But if you were unemployed, or it was a female-headed household, malnutrition levels were much, much higher. 
average consumption levels grew to levels not that far short today, but the problem with averages is that it doesn't show the full picture. There were lots of government interventions to improve nutrition for the poor, and some made some difference, but there were big problems still. Consumerism, the booming US economy introduced new products that extended to the UK. Many new kitchen devices came to the market. The Argo cooker was first launched in 1922. Electricity supply enabled food mixers, 1920s, pop-up toasters, 1926. And for the overindulgent, and there were lots of them, John Rennie first marketed the indigestion tablets in the 1920s. <coughs> and there were some new trends in what people ate. A good solid meal of meat, potatoes and veg became a recognised standard, even if not everyone had one. Breakfast cereals as we know them today arrived in 1922 with imported Kellogg's cornflakes and all bran. And there were a diverse range of cakes that became much more popular than we'd seen previously. The wealthy at this point had started to eat less. I mean, I'm talking relatively. And just as an aside, Italian cafes and restaurants became popular with an influx of Italians after the First World War. But again, there were problems. Fat shaming, as a term we recognise today, became more prevalent. As we see in social media today, a new class of media, in this case magazines, carry influence. And it made very clear that being fat was bad. They include their own dieting articles alongside paying advertisers with wonder products and regimes. As an example is Leonard Williams' remark in his book 1926 entitled Obesity. A doctor, he made it very clear, being fat is unacceptable. Other quotes that of the time, including the fantastic one which was much used at the time, is that these fat people are failing the empire. In previous years, with a few notable exceptions, books were largely about the sustainable diet, although dieting books did come in. But now, dieting books really took off. The American physician Lulu Hunt Peters' book, Dieting and Health of 1918, was an early example of the calorie control diet, first time mention of that, and it was a bestseller. It explained the concept of calories and showed women how to calculate ideal weight and estimate food portions. The Diet for Women, notice a theme of words here, was published by the British physician Cecil Webb Johnson in 1923. Now he advocated a low carbohydrate, low fat and low protein diet. You do wonder what's left. <laughs> All cakes, cereals, dairy, sugar, potatoes, carrots, peas, beans, fatty meats and game were all forbidden. That's a really tough regime. The book The Culture of the Abdomen was targeting men, very rare. It contrasted the bad posture and protruding abdomen of the civilised man, I don't know what they're talking about, <laughs> with the splendid physique of the native man. It advocated daily rhythmic abdominal exercises and was widely endorsed by the medical profession. So women were being targeted, stop eating with the nasty stuff, the men just beef yourselves up, mate, and you'll be all right. Extraordinary. Beyond books and the media, the media became influential. There were famous forms of restrictive clothing, such as rubber corsets to sweat out the fat. New science was spawned an, an, an industry of anti-fat products, avoiding the need to change a diet or do exercise at all. There were slimming drugs. There's a big story about drugs in this. 
right through to drugs that are used today. Cocaine is really popular today, apparently, to lose weight. I didn't know that. And as thyroid substance to cure obesity. Beautification surgery became commercial, using much of the learnings from World War I. And cigarettes actually provoked weight loss benefits. Now, some were appalled by the slimming craze. A guy named Arthur J. Cramp, in his book of 1928, A Doctor, Fooling the Fat, decried the charlatans' new schemes and these dubious new products and hated the fact that the public put faith in these new schemes. The second half of the 20th century, so I've not covered the wars, and that's seen a radical change in what we eat and how we get our food. This period is going to be a trip down memory lane. If we look at the century as a whole, the population growth was still high in the first half of the century, and then we had the baby boomers, 50s to the 70s. But in the last 25 years, the population growth has significantly slowed. The migrants to towns and cities is levelling off, and the pressure on improved farming and supply is much more about commercial competition than it is about actually meeting the population growth needs. Some quick summary headlines. The last 50 years have seen much more food choice, much more international influence, the less need to prepare food, and new forms of what is called convenient food, and we're much better informed the ingredients, the nutrition values, and the origin of the food itself. A major change is the women at work, and it's gone from 30% at the start of the century, uh, which was mainly young women working, through to 70%, which is across a large age range now. And you could argue that convenience meals was in good part either driven by this change or it helped to enable that change to happen. And there are changes to where we eat. There's a large shift to eating out. 60% of the spend now is on home food, but 40% we're spending on eating out or takeaways. And many studies show that we're far less eating at the table. We consume whilst we're being entertained or whilst we're working. And at home, there's much less formality of mealtimes due to more diverse work patterns and increased social activities. There's much more as well, and there's big numbers on this, on single dining, where there's less family time together that are having their meals. So a lot of big changes in the last uh, 50, 70 years. Since the 1950s, we've moved to food abundance. To represent this, I've chosen to access to food and the arrival of the self-service supermarket. So the first self-service supermarket was opened in East London in 1948 by the London Cooperative Society. Supermarkets. In 1950s, supermarkets had 20% market share. And through the 50s into the 1980s, some of them have become titans. Eight stores now represent over 80% of the UK food sales. There's over 34,000 stores in, in, in the UK, and this excludes food specialists such as bakeries and butchers. And supermarkets are grouped into three different sizes, hyper, standard, and smaller. So the Sainsbury's at Walter's End is a hyper store. The Lidl in Dogfield Way is a smaller supermarket. And on average, there are five supermarkets for every town and city in the UK. Alongside these are small urban and local chain grocers and rural farm shops. So we really have 
extensive access to food. And the different stores hold differing levels of range of food products. For example, the Water Lane Sainsbury's will hold around 25,000 food types for us to choose from. Now that's a staggering number. Um, it's estimated that in about 1900, the choices were only 500. So we've moved from 500 to 25,000 choices of food. Now that said, you might not like them all, but that's, that's what's there. But the dominance of the supermarkets isn't all good news. Not only have traditional grocers largely disappeared, but so have local butchers and bakers. And the number of specialist stores in, in the UK have halved in the, in the last 50 years. And more choice doesn't mean more healthy. Uh, there's an excellent study done by an Australian group that found that only 32% of available supermarket products could be classified as healthy. And product diversity and year-round supply means global sourcing. 48% of their food comes from abroad. Less than 2% is local-local. It means that more packaging and transport and, of course, there are environmental consequences. So it's not all good news. And supermarkets are accused of conditioning us to purchase what they want to sell. Recent Cambridge University research, though, reviewed the last 40 years in detail and included that we, the public, are too quick to blame supermarkets and food manufacturers for our unhealthy eating habits, using them as scapegoats rather than taking personal responsibility for what we eat. I think it's a bit about the supermarket's influence and our own taste buds. For the last 40 years, we've been awash with food consumption data. Here's some examples. Meat sales grew from 1950 to 1990, but with a big shift to poultry away from beef and lamb. And meat sales now are actually on the decline. Milk has sales have slowly declined with a big shift away from four-fat milk. Cereal consumption in bread, cakes and for breakfast still remains strong. Fruit and vegetable consumption declined up to the 1990s, but actually in the last 10 years is starting to grow. But potato sales, which had spectacular growth in the first half of the 20th century, are now starting to slide. There are some great reports produced by DEFRA on every combination of food types out there. But what about diet as a whole? A survey has been carried out each decade on the favourite family meals in Britain. Now, it won't represent all of our tastes and choices, but here's some trends. Spaghetti bolognese has steadily risen to become the nation's family favourite from the 2000s. Who knew? Pizza has come from nowhere to be very popular, and I suspect it's now the number one choice. The roast is seen as a traditional favourite. Its popularity is high, but it's probably starting to wane. And lastly, jacket potatoes are a family favourite. Actually, if you look over history and our reluctance to eat potatoes in earlier centuries, we seem to have overcome this. Potatoes have moved from a place of not being particularly liked to becoming a very strong force. Overall, many of the dishes have remained popular across that period, but it has become more international. And the biggest change is that in the 1960s, there were no pasta dishes listed. In the 2000s, at least four or five of those are now pasta-based. It's the Italians. A major change has been in food convenience, changing our food to the ready meals. 
Heinz beans is an early example, canned preservation of processed foods heated on a stove. It was first sold in Fortnum and Masons uh, in either 1886 or 1901. Strangely, there's a dispute about that. Um, bird's eye fish fingers introduced frozen prepared food for cooking under the grill in 1938. Now, a sea change came in the US, of course it was the US, in 1954, with the concept of the TV dinner, a tray, airline-type tray of prepared food. And from then on, you see a big change in uh, Western food eating. The Vesta curry and the Vesta chow mein was introduced in 1964, requiring hot water to produce a full meal. Instantly, I'm not sure how many of us would own up to this. Who's eating pot noodles? I could do a show of hands, couldn't I? But it was introduced by Golden Wonder in 1977. I certainly remember uh, eating one at university only once. Um, Marks and Spencer trailblazed the oven-ready prepared meal with its chicken Kiev in 1979. And the microwave ready meal equivalent was launched by most supermarkets in 1986. These arrivals depended on innovations, gas and electric cookers, fridges, freezers and microwaves, but ready meals included veiled ingredients, trans fats, flavour enhancers, artificial colouring and sweeteners. Convenience food does not have to be unhealthy. In fact, many nutritionists believe that ready meals can become a means to improve the citizen's diet across the UK. A 1950s housewife married Bliss because she served the perfect chow mein meal to her husband. And he was so happy and so loving as a consequence. I don't think that would go down well today. But that said, many of the adverts have subtle equivalent means of influences and, and touching on our emotions. What else has happened in this period is takeaways and fast food. It's about 10% of all food purchases now, and it has grown by 50% in the last 10 years, so it's really taken off. Now, fast food is not new. Takeaway pies were popular from the 16th century and maybe earlier. Fish and chips dominated our fast food supply until the 1970s, actually peaked in the 1930s with 35,000 shops. We've now got about 10,000 in the UK, so they're still very large. Indian Chinese takeaway start dates are much harder to pin down. The restaurants have both opened in the 19th century, but actually the takeaways took off from the 1950s. The big players are the burger takeaways. McDonald's arrived in 74, and it's got now 1,200 outlets. Kentucky Fried Chicken, surprisingly, arrived earlier. I, I didn't remember that, but in 1965... Pizza Express was the first pizza chain from 1965, but Domino's Pizza, which is the current market lead, first opened in 1985, has over a thousand outlets. Junk food is a pejorative term that arrived in the 1960s, apt for many of these fast foods. The typical characteristics of junk food, it's not good. Playing on our affinity to sugar, salt and fat with near addictive qualities. Research shows a strong link between fat, fast foods and obesity. But we've also seen the growth of top-end cuisine. The first Michelin Guide, I was going to bring my copy of this, sorry, was first published in 1911. The restaurant star system arriving in 1926. Yet the first starred restaurant in the UK didn't arrive until Le Greve Gavroche in 1977. So we were in the wilderness for a long time. But now there are 184 and behind them, many other quality restaurants. So the top end has grown as well as the fast food market. Eating 
more expanded our waistlines from the 1950s. I know we're all in denial. Dieting becomes very common, almost a form of fashion. People become serial dieters. Having failed with one scheme, they look for the next trendy diet, enthusiastically adopting it and then ditching it. The diet industry responds, and here are a sample of the best sellers, some of them you may recognise. There was a fat versus sugar debate in the 1970s amongst nutritionists and, and politicians culminating in the US and and other governments focusing on fat and cholesterol, pushing the food industry to reduce fat content, often with sugar as a substitution. Dissenting voices were disregarded until the century end, when a more balanced view of sugar and fat has now been taken. If we summarise the chronological view that we've looked at of diet and dieting, it shows the changes to the types of food we eat, but more importantly, it is the changes to how much we eat, and as a consequence, increased efforts to contain this through dieting. Let's look at consumption then. So we're moving to the themes now. These are quite short. We've skipped through periods in the dieting. I've then looked at a number of themes across the centuries. In fact, I took 10 themes. It got completely out of hand. But I'm only going to focus on two today. How consumption levels have changed, both in terms of volume and nutrient content. And look at the celebrated English dishes and where do they originate from. The first way to view food composition is as an energy source. The calorie, a measure of heat energy, dates back to 1819. And in the 1890s, the American Wilbur Atwater made a major breakthrough when he introduced a system that calculated available energy in each food type and the human body's energy burn rate. Today, calorie intake is a major part of weight control and good diet. Uh, but the amount we need varies enormously. A professional rugby player needs over 4,000 calories a day. We don't. But today you can easily find out how many calories a day you need uh, to, just to maintain your weight based on your age, gender, current weight, height and level of exercise. There's a fantastic little app that does this for you. The average calories needed in the UK, this is the average for all of us, is 2,250 a day. Now, a number of people have attempted to retrofit in likely calorie intake at points in history. Clearly, the consumption of the wealthy and the poor would be very different in history, though they actually start to converge from the 19th century. Today's recommended average intake may not be relevant to the past. Work was significantly more manual, needing a higher calorie intake, probably up to 3,500 a day. Conversely, people were a lot shorter, so they needed less calories. For example, the average height of a British man at the age of 21 in 1871 was only 5 foot 5, but in 1971 it was 5 foot 10, and the taller there are, the more calories you need. That's an astonishing thing. So there's ups and downs. On balance, I've left the 2,250, but in the past they probably did need more because of the work, intensive manual work. For the average citizen, that there was a calorie shortage right back to 1270. But things have got progressively better, reaching today's recommended intake in about 1860. Ironically, there was a sharp improvement in calories per person after the Black Death. Food production levels largely stayed, but there were less people needing to be fed, and so more people got better quantity of food. Small dips for the two world wars, where we were living through a period of restrictions on what we could have. It's not a new phenomenon, this, that we're eating too much. It's been around for quite some time for the average person. 
The other way of viewing food is nutritional content. And that's how I'm focusing on today's thinking and then going backwards from it, because that's the only way you can see these things. Flawed principles of humanism gave way to human nutrition science, a simplified breakdown of food composition as we now understand it. What we call macronutrients, the fats, the carbs and the protein, with a further breakdown of the sugars and the types of fat. Though knowledge of these has existed in some form for millennium, the mid-19th century saw their classification with more detailed understanding from the early 20th century. Vitamins and minerals. Again, a few of these have been known about for centuries, but it wasn't until the 1920s that vitamins were discovered, and since then our understanding of actually how they work in our bodies. With food abundance and oversized citizens becoming an issue, both the UK and the US nutrition research shifted from undernutrition to overnutrition from the 1970s. And today we've got these guidelines like five a day, labelling of products and trackers on, on you can use on an app where we can gauge our intake, though frankly it's rather messy and imprecise. For most, we're doing pretty well. We're within the recommended bounds. But there are some problems. We eat too much protein, mainly in the form of high saturated fats meat, but, and that also comes with excessive iron levels. We eat too much sugar and salt. More about that in a moment. We have insufficient fibre in our diets and we have vitamin D shortages, particularly in the winter time. If I do a survey around the room, and there are lots of surveys out there, actually most of the British public know all this. You know, we are very knowledgeable today. Whether we act on it is a slightly different matter. If you go back in time, it gets harder to improve. But nutritionists generally think there were many more vitamin and mineral deficiencies in England in the 16th to 19th centuries. But because diet varied so widely by social group and location, the vitamin and mineral deficiencies varied widely across the population. There is clear evidence of vitamin A, C, D and iron deficiencies in these periods, with consequences on eyesight, green sickness, anemia, scurvy and rickets. All of those are stored in their own right. But let's look at two of the common things. Sugar. Honey was the primary sweetener in the England for many centuries. Imported refined sugar was a luxury for the few. From the late 17th century, the colonial powers developed large sugar plantations, which combined with the scale of maritime trading, brought sugar availability and wider consumption. By the mid-18th century, people were eating 10 times from 150 years earlier, and then seven times more of that again in the last 150 years. Its addictive qualities have driven this growth. Products of today, how their sugars are added to them, and this is one of the hidden problems with processed foods, is you really don't see what you're having. But sugar consumption has levelled off, but we're still consuming about 50% more than we should. Salt is a very different story. Again, it's about addiction, but it started much earlier. In the 16th to mid-19th centuries, salted meats and fish were very common. And as table salt became available, so we added it to other foods to match the taste from the salted meats. By the time alternative preservation mechanisms were available, we were hooked on salt. And then 20th century processed foods bowed to our taste buds, adding salt to the packaged foods. Reliable history data on salt intake is quite hard to find, partly because it's used for many other purposes. Nutritionists think that it was higher than today in previous centuries. 
but consistent recording only started in 1958. From 2003, the Food Standards Agency targeted the food industry to reduce salt intake in processed foods and consumers adding salt to meals. There's been some success. Our overall consumption is still too high. So you can see where the problems actually date back a long time where we get used to these things and we just can't get off them. In the early periods, the poor ate significantly less than the wealthy who ate to excess the wrong foods. This is not through choice by the poor. They would have done the same if they could have. Neither's diet was, could be described as healthy, but for very different reasons. But today, research consistently shows that on average, middle class and upper class diets are healthier than those of the working class. Figures from studies vary, but the common view is that for the lower social groups, I don't like that term, but that's what they call them, about 9% more calories are eaten than by the other groups, equivalent to about 300 calories a day. I think care is needed with such generalisations. So when did this overeating crossover happen from the rich being eating too much to it's now the lower social groups? Well, the upper class curtailed their excesses and took on more vegetables from the late 19th century. The 1880s is generally regarded as the turning point on the, when the working class started to get access to sustainable and affordable food, breads and staple products, largely driven by the imports. In the early 20th century, the volumes eating started to converge across social groups, particularly with the influence of World War I and World War II rationing. In the second half of the 20th century, we moved to food abundance. Convenience and fast food has been taken up by all classes, but particularly by the poorer social groups. And the quantity of evidence only really exists since the 1960s to show that it is where the working class overtook the other social groups in terms of volume eaten. Now studies show a mix of reasons why slower social groups make more unhealthy food choices. There's economics, attitude, their education levels, the influence on them and the local environment are all in the play. The most interesting is that the general education attainment, if you look at statistics, it has the biggest association to making healthy food choices, your level of general education. Types of food and quantities of food chosen by those in groups with less education attainment are less healthy. But what about our national dishes? England's signatory dishes may not have the delicacy or subtle palate of French cuisine, but they are ours. Each has a story. Just a couple of examples. Pies and pastries, both sweet and savoury, date from the 14th century. The Sunday roast originated as a meal to be eaten after church on Sunday, and linked to the fasting days. Though elements existed back to medieval times, the roasted meat, potatoes and veg that we understand today is only chronicled from the late 1700s. And I didn't know this, but fruit crumble evolved in the Second World War when rationing led to move from pies to coated toppings. So quite a lot of variety of dates here from some of our most famous foods. I'm going to skip through some famous diets now, or dieting, I've got to care for my own language here, and cover some of the most famous ones that are out there. All the diet themes that I've found, not using their brand names, they've all been existing in various forms over the last two to three hundred years. The variety shows our human ingenuity and our willingness to experiment, but it probably also shows desperation with little logic. 
many branded diets mix some of these bits up together. So there's an awful lot of them. But if you get to the heart of it, most of them are suppressing one of the macronutrients, i.e. eat these things but don't eat fat, eat these things but don't eat protein, eat these things but eat less carbs, is really the mantra of an awful lot of the diet schemes when you get to the bottom of them. Now they all require less eating, in general terms, up to 50% less food for a defined period, which causes the yo-yo effect, of course. But it's not you. Other than we know the terminology now, we can go back to exactly those diets existed then. They were just dressing up with all the jargon, frankly, nowadays. So I'm not really convinced by many of them. There are also a lot of things around superfoods. And again, these, it's interesting, right back to BC, you can find people that thought things were superfoods. So they come and go. But these are the ones that seem to be recurring themes. Now, there isn't such a thing as a superfood, by the way. It's just it might be a better part of your health, but it's nothing doing something super good for you. And there are also ones that are recognised as being useful in terms of fertility and aphrodisiacs. You can check your pantries at home. Have you got any turnips? I don't know. I mean, are they useful? I don't know. I can believe chocolate, just because everyone would say chocolate no matter what anyway, wouldn't they? So recurring diet themes. I want to go into vegetarian and vegan diets. And again, in terms of time, I'm not going to go through it all. But there's been a lot around back to BC, where particularly on the religious side, there's a lot around vegetarian and vegan diets. But actually the timelines in England have been relatively recent in terms of exclusively. Quite a lot of books earlier said cut down the level of meats that you eat, but none of them said exclusion. I really want to show you the trends that these things are not new. These things have been around for some time. Mastication, it comes and goes. Chewing, chewing, chewing. You can get online and look now. There are so many diet schemes out there that are about chewing or eating slow. Raw food is a favourite one that comes and goes. And fasting, anyone knows the, uh, Dr Mosley, uh, he's making a fortune, much more than he makes on TV, from his fasting books. I'm not saying they do or don't work, but his 5-2 diet is just the latest incarnation of what's been going for many, many years. Two that are rated as good, in the relative scheme of most of them don't work, is Weight Watchers, where the combination of a good plan and peer influence seems to have a good effect. Peer influence can be bad. A Mediterranean diet is also seen as a good. I'm just going to conclude. There's a lot around who is responsible for the diet, and basically we've been shifting away from individuals taking full responsibility for their diet. So much more, it's partly the government's fault, and it's partly other people's fault, and it's the supermarket's fault. So we're quite good at shifting the blame to other parties now, but in the end, most people still think it's an individual. As soon as humans had enough to eat, we ate too much. The fear of not knowing how long to the next meal became ingrained in the human psyche for thousands of years. And that wiring is now what's causing our problem. For a long time, people know, have known that they should eat less. And actually, many of the diets of the past are reasonably sound, though there's some quirky foods on the way. Yet we still ignore the advice and we still eat the wrong foods. The dieting industry is great at promoting to us that we must have the new great thing. Thank you very much. This podcast has been produced by the Mr. T Podcast Studio in association with the Farnham U3A World History Group. Thank you very much for listening to this talk.